Morning, everyone. Morning. You are? Great. Um, it's strange when you uh, come to a story where everyone knows what's going to happen at the end, uh, but you're going through the story all along knowing you know, this is exactly where it's going. And I guess uh, as we've been going through Luke's gospel as a church for the last few years, um, we've all been aware of where this is going. And Luke's made that clear pretty much from the start. If you remember Jesus right in the temple uh, at the beginning, a little baby at that time. And Simeon, this old man, comes up to him and he prophesies over uh, Jesus' mum and says, a sword will pierce your heart through this guy's life. And instantly, we know, we know where this is heading. We know what that sword is. We know the cross is waiting uh, in this story. And that's been signposted as it's gone along. And today, that is where we, we reach. But it's, uh, I think it's helpful to remember that on the ground at the time, that sense of inevitability about the proceedings in the life of Jesus would not have been there. And in fact, it's kind of odd the way this turns out in the story. I mean, if you'd been there, you'd have been thinking, this guy looks like he's going to just evade the religious authorities forever. Yeah, they, they hate him. They want to kill him. But it looks like he could well escape this. He's going to get away. How's that going to work? Even when Jesus is uh, tried, it looks like he's getting off. Pilate thinks he's innocent. Herod thinks he's innocent. It looks like that's going to rule. Why, why would it not? Even when it's handed over to the crowd for them to decide, well, this is the crowd that loved Jesus. And Barabbas, really, they're going to make that choice. Now, it looks like he's going to escape. And even where, I think this is probably where it would have been left last week or the week before with you guys, Jesus is crucified, he's put up on the cross. There is still doubt in our mind as where this is going to go. The people are shouting out to him, uh, he saved others. Why doesn't he save himself? And there is a genuine sense that he could at any moment just go, okay, guys, I've had enough of this. I will. Now, how do you like it? That was possible. Jesus could have done that. That would have been, would have been uh, within the realms of possibility. But that's not how it ends, uh, this part of the story. Uh, we'll see that. We're going to pick it up in Luke 23, verse 44, uh, just here. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. For the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, a good and upright man, who had not consented to their decision and action. He came from the Judean town of Arimathea, and he himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen cloth, and placed it in a tomb cut in the rock, one in which no one had yet been laid. It was preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin. The women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. Then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes, but they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. Now, just as we, on the ground, you might not have predicted how this was going to turn out, Luke deliberately in this passage doesn't allude to what we all know will happen next. Next week you'll get this, and we all know what that is. Jesus, this isn't the end for Jesus. Obviously, that's the case. We, we all know that. Even if you've never been to church before, you know there's a bit that comes in the story after this. But it's important to notice that in this chapter, Luke doesn't give us anything about that at all. 
for, for him, he presents this as the end. I mean, look at these. You've got the, uh, you've got the centurion with this godly response in it. But even that is, he was a righteous man. He's like saying, yeah, I think Jesus was right, actually. Not the religious leaders, but his past tense is, is gone. The, the, the women in the story, uh, very interesting. Commentate on this passage, a guy called Matthew Henry says, their response, the preparation of these spices, was an act of kindness, but it wasn't an act of faith. Because why are they doing those perfumes and spices? Well, it's, you only do it for the body, and then you get rid of the body. That's not what you do for someone who you expect to resurrect. This is presented in some senses, darkness is here, the end is here. But even in this chapter, there's one character and one statement that shines through all of that, and we're going to focus on that today. And unpredictably, the character is Jesus, and the statement is the one we find in verse 46. What Luke presents his final words, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I don't know about you, but often in the past, I've passed over this statement. I've heard this many times, going through this passage. I've passed over, it's almost like Jesus saying goodbye. That's it. Let's go on to the next thing. It's hardly the most theologically profound statement in many ways. It's something maybe more weighty. Some of the other statements from the cross, Father, forgive them. Why have you forsaken me? That's, there's something meat there. This is just like, okay, I trust God. But I think that's the point of this. I think Luke's drawing our attention to this here. This simple statement of trust. Basically, Jesus dies as he's lived. And he died as he calls us to live. You might be here today as a a Christian who's kind of getting a little bit lost, losing the wood for the trees, thinking, look, I've got all these things I need to do to to be a good Christian. Read my Bible and tell people about Jesus and uh, do this at church. And they say, well, what is it? I'm stuck. I want to bring it right back today to the one thing that God really asks of us. Simple trust in the Father. Simple trust in the Son. You might be looking from outside Christianity. You might not be a Christian yourself thinking, you know, some things in Christianity I like, some things not too sure about. Well, what is it to be a Christian? I want to focus you on what it means, the central thing. It's simple trust in God. And I want to just go through this statement, really, this sentence, word by word. I want us to squeeze all the juice we can out of this. What does this trust look like for us? And that's what we're going to do. You might think to yourself, he's going through the life of Jesus. How did he get through it all? How did he live a sinless life? How did he, even on the cross, not, give, not disobey his father, not sin, not take a shortcut? Well, I think Luke's saying here, well, it's all about this. Simple trust in the Father. And for us, it's just the same. So let's have a look at this sentence then. And let's look at it one word at a time. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. First word, Father. Okay, let's give a bit of context to this. I think we're going to need to understand this in the, in the general scheme of uh, the, all the Gospels. And this will be repetition for much of us, but it's helpful repetition. Uh, Father was the way that Jesus typically addressed God. And it was highly novel and highly controversial in his time. For many of us uh, as Christians, we'd pray and it would just trip off our lips. Father, that was not the case in those times. This was when Jesus said, Father, people, what? You talking to God like that? Because there's a a level of personal intimacy with God that this word communicates that was just not a feature of Old Testament Judaism and is not a feature of most world religious systems. But even more than that, 
when we talk to God as Father, it speaks of a new relationship with God that is opened up through his unique son, Jesus, but is not unique to his son, Jesus. What I mean by that is uh, Jesus could obviously call God Father because he was the son, but he also taught his disciples to call God Father. This is open to all of us to be able to relate to God like this. And this is in contrast, again, uh, with most religious views of God. The, the more regular religious relationship with God is the relationship, really, of an employee to their boss or their employer. Or to put that in the language of the time, really a servant or even a slave to their master. And uh, we would still uh, use this sort of imagery. When we talk about God sometimes, wouldn't we? We'd talk about uh, we are servants of God. He's our Lord. Okay, what's Lord mean? Well, that means master. Okay, we, we shift away from master because of well, some of the connotations. But that is what is communicated in those passages. And just to be clear, that's, that's good. That's still, that image of master-servant still helps us in understanding who we are and how we relate to God. But we've got to be absolutely clear. While there is still things we can get from that image, that is not the defining relationship we have with God now. No, no, we're not employees of an employer. We're children of a father. We're sons and daughters. Yes, we're sons and daughters who serve. Yes, we've got a job to do, but we're sons and daughters primarily. And for some of you might think, oh, that's just pedantic. We're sons and daughters who serve, servants who are sons and daughters. Who cares? Actually, while it's slightly technical maybe, that is the defining characteristic of Christianity that sets it apart from most other world religious systems. Because when you use the imagery of a child with their father, you were saying that relationship with God is dependent entirely on our position in the family and not about our performance, okay? Let's look at it the other way around. That when you approach God as a, a master or an employer or a boss, you do clearly approach on the basis of performance. That's that image. You, you, at work with your boss, your relationship is dependent upon you fulfilling certain things, okay? If I do my job well, this relationship holds. If I don't, he's not going to be very pleased. And if I really don't, I will be sacked from this job, okay? We'd all understand that, however friendly your boss is. You know there are things you can do that are going to seriously sever this relationship, okay? And that is the imagery of master and servant. That's, that's the imagery that's there. It's a, it's a performance-based relationship. But that's not the case when you talk of your father. Obviously, some parents might veer from the ideal, but the image of fatherhood, of parenthood, includes this idea of, well, my position as child is the defining characteristic. And while the, the father might be disappointed, while the father might at some points discipline, the father is never going to sever the relationship, whatever I do. Now, it's worth saying that for Jesus and Paul and all the writers of the New Testament, this relationship, this, uh, this right to talk to God like this was not automatic. So what Jesus wasn't saying was, hey guys, you've never realized this before, but we're all God's children just on the basis that he made us and we can all now relate to God like this it's automatically. He's not saying that actually. Uh, that wasn't the case. But at the same point, he wasn't saying that you can earn the right to do this through good behavior. Now, what, how do you then get into the family? John chapter 1 verse 12 very helpfully answers that question to us. Yet... To all who did receive Jesus, to those who believed in Jesus' name, he gave the right to become children of God. We get given the right to talk to God like this, to have this relationship through, what does it say, receiving Jesus and believing in his name. 
And I think, well, what's that? Well, essentially what that is, is exactly what we're going to be talking about today. By trusting in God in the person of his son, Jesus. What we see Jesus doing on the cross, as he says, Father, I trust you, God, I trust you, is he's modeling the trust that gets us in to the family. And actually, when we see how Jesus trusted his father, at this point where that trust was stretched to its complete limit, we do see how we're called to trust him too. Because with that context had, let's hone in now on the exact situation we find uh, in this passage. And you say, well, calling God father is reasonably remarkable. But here at this point, surely it's even more remarkable that this word would have been the one on Jesus' lips. Let's, Let's face it. Whenever you call God father, it's a statement of faith. That's a statement of faith, isn't it? What you're saying, the minute you call God Father, is there is a God who is of a certain type and who treats me in a certain way. That When I say Father, I'm saying, God, you're there, but not just you're there, you're a God who will never abandon me and never leave me and always show your favor to me in one way or another. But in this passage, all of the evidence that Jesus sees around him would say the exact opposite of that. We've seen this over the last few weeks in this series. The darkness that Jesus finds himself in here. And it's a darkness uh, marked by abandonment. He's been abandoned by his fan base. Let's put it like that. The crowd has turned on him quite dramatically. The ones, thousands of them on the hillside to be fed at one point, now are all calling for him to die. His friends, Judas, Peter. Notice in this passage, even those who make it to the cross, where are they? They're at a distance. They don't want to be too associated with the one they once followed very, very closely. He's been abandoned by people. But for Luke, the key thing is not just that, but he's been abandoned by God himself. And we see that in two places. And I know that we've, we've talked about this a little bit in these two. I think it's important that we recognize this, as you'll see in a second. And the two places we see this in Luke is on the cross here and also in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus prayed. And just if we can return for a moment to the Garden, been there a couple of times, just to think about that, because I think this really drives this point home, and there might be a question some of you would have asked in in past sermons about this, because it's a clear place where Jesus realizes God's gone. Where is he? So if you remember, at the end of Luke 22, Jesus just had the Last Supper. He's not, not been arrested yet. He's praying. He's told his disciples, you guys need to stay awake to pray. This is an important time to pray. He's praying, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me, but not my will, your will. And this is something really odd. It says, an angel came and strengthened him. And so if, I'm, if, if that's me at that point, I'm thinking, oh, Mars, I'm praying. Oh, Mars, there is an angel there. I'm thinking, God's with me. Fantastic. God has sent an angel. I don't know about you guys. That doesn't often happen to me. I mean, I, I know, you know, I'm just, it's just me. You guys are probably better in that. But that doesn't happen to me. If that happened, I'd think, good prayer time. God with me. I'd be putting that on the page, the breakthrough page, you know. But why, why didn't this happen? The next verse says this. Jesus was in great anguish and he prayed as his sweat fell like drops of blood. It doesn't seem the presence of that angel really helped Jesus' state of mind. Why? Actually, the angel, I think, wasn't a sign of God with him. It was a sign, finally, that God had abandoned his son. Might sound odd. I'll, I'll tell you where I get that from. There's another story where this exactly happens in Exodus 33. We can whiz back our minds to the Old Testament for a minute. Israel, 
come out of slavery uh, in Egypt. And they're on their way to the promised land. Okay? To get that, they've got to defeat a whole load of people, but that's where they're going. Okay? But Israel have messed things up. And you might know, if you know the story, the golden calf incident was a particular low point in Israel's allegiance to God. And that's just happened. And in the story, God is very angry with Israel and has basically just about had enough of them. And this is what he says to Moses. Exodus 33, 2-3, he says, I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hevites, and Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you, because you are a stiff-necked people, and I might destroy you on the way. Just consider yourself in Moses' shoes at this point. If it was me again and again, you're probably thinking you're a bad person. I think I might have said, God, hold on for a minute. I need to just think about this deal. Okay? So you're going to give me the promised land, victory over all our enemies, and we get an angel, but you're just not coming with us. Okay, let's think. Let's, let's weigh this one up. There are certain pros and cons here. What's Moses' response? Verse 15. If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. <laughs> What's he saying? He's saying this. If you ain't coming, I ain't going. And Moses is putting his foot down here. Moses was a guy who knew the presence of God. In a meeting like this, we often talk about the presence of God, and you might think, I don't really know what that means. That's very vague. That's a fuzzy idea. Okay? It wasn't fuzzy for Moses. Moses had a tent that he went into. Sometimes when he came out of that tent, his face would be glowing because he actually met with God in some really significant way. It said that God spoke to Moses as a friend talks to a friend. He knew the presence of God. And he knew, actually, it's not about victory over our enemies. It's not about the promise that if you're not going, I'm not going. Okay? So, with this angel, the angel wasn't a symbol of closeness for Moses. He didn't want the angel. He wanted God. I think of Jesus. Moses knew the presence of God. Think about Jesus' familiarity with the presence of God. And he opens his eyes, he's praying, and his heart sinks. He sees, oh no, he sent an angel. What did Jesus want? Remember his baptism before the last time he was tempted by the enemy. What did he get then? He's baptized. The Holy Spirit comes down on him like a dove. What does that mean? It means God came to him. That's what Jesus needs. That's what he wants. He opens his eyes. Oh, it's an angel. Oh, no. This is a sign of God saying, you know what? I have transferred all the sins of the world onto you. And now I cannot see you anymore. I cannot come close to you anymore. The best I can do is send an angel. Can you see why the angel doesn't exactly improve Jesus' mood on this occasion? But notice this. Whereas Moses put his foot down and said, if you ain't going, I ain't going. What does Jesus do? He recognizes God's not going, but he still obeys. He still follows it through to the end. We see then this sense of abandonment reflected in the crucifixion story. Finally, with this mention of darkness, the darkness invades even the noon, the time where it should be most light, darkness comes. That's not good when that happens. That's the symbolism here is not good. Okay? And obviously, as we talked about last few weeks, there's an element of Dark spiritual powers having their day here. Satan enters Judas. Satan sifts Peter like wheat. And there's clearly bad forces doing stuff. But also, we can see the darkness from a different angle. And Luke points out here, he says, The darkness is so bad, it's as if the sun has stopped shining. 
People speculate about what this could mean. This could be purely symbolic. Probably Luke thought, no, no, there's actually something that happened here. Uh, either an eclipse, the moon getting in the way of the sun, or a dust cloud comes up, which does happen at some times. But something blocked out the sun. I don't think the symbolism there is too hard for us to grasp, is it? The sun is the source of light and the source of heat and the source of life in many ways. For Jesus... Something didn't just block out that source of life, but the ultimate source of life was utterly removed. And now there's no angel, there's just darkness. But what does Jesus say? What's his first word that comes from his mouth? Father. He still calls him Father. It couldn't have looked any worse. It couldn't have looked any more like he wasn't his Father. But that's the word that trips off his tongue. The simple trust that Jesus shows on the cross is a trust that God still loves him as his child despite at that moment all the evidence being to the contrary. Now let's apply this to us. As Jonathan said a couple of weeks back, we need to be clear about this, none of us will ever face our own Gethsemane. We'll never face our own cross. We'll never really go through what Jesus went through. But there can be shades of this experience And for some of you, I think God's been speaking to you if you're in this boat a number of times over the last few sermons, but I think he's really bringing this to us. For some of you, it might just seem really dark right now. You might put the darkness in the same way as this passage does, in in a sense of kind of abandonment. Maybe abandonment by people, maybe people who've let you down who are close to you. Maybe abandonment by God. You're saying, I'm praying, I can't hear anything, I can't feel anything. Where is God? Now, if you're in that place, I want to lift the burden off you. Because there's a load of things that God is not expecting from you right now. There's a load of things he's not asking of you. If you're in that place, God is not asking you to put on a brave face. He's not asking you to pretend everything's fine. Actually, you've got to hear this the right way, but he's not even expecting you to respond perfectly to the situation. He's not asking you to get all your words in the right order or control all your emotions and get all of that right too. No, he's not asking that. God's asking for one thing. Just asking one thing. Will you still trust me? Do you still trust that I love you and I'm still for you? Can you say that one word? Can you say Father? Now you might think, oh, you think you've made that simpler. That's the hardest bit. That's almost impossible. How can I say that? Well, take strength from the example of Jesus. When the darkness was at its worst, he could still say, Father. If that's just enough to push you over there, just say that word. That's all he's asking of you. Father, let's move on to the next bit. Father, into your hands. Okay, we'll get onto hands in a moment, but now I'm going to be particularly geeky. I want to get into some grammar and the word your, okay? I didn't study much grammar at school. Uh, but my kids do, and so I'm learning it all now, okay? Apparently, you're is a pronoun. Is this correct? Yeah, okay, good. I'm, I'm starting there. Let's go even more geeky than that. It is a second-person singular pronoun. Ooh, okay, good. I'm glad you're on, on that. Uh, this might sound incredibly geeky and silly, okay? This splits generations, doesn't it? I was checking this at the back over there. Wait, well, see, good, you passed just about. Uh, but anyway, um, this might sound geeky, but this is actually really important uh, here. It's a second person singular. Now, I want to break that down for you. First of all, it's second person, not first person. What is he on about? Let me explain to you what I mean. Christian faith is not a faith in me. It's a faith in you. 
got to be clear on this. It's not first person, first person, I and me, okay? It's a second person. It's about faith in you, not faith in me. Let's face it. For all of us, we've got to have faith in someone or something, haven't we? You've got to trust someone at some point. Okay, people talk about religious faith. They're people who have faith. No, no, everybody has faith. You have to ultimately trust someone or something with your life. And for most people, their faith and trust will be uh, first person. It will be trust in me. Who do I trust to carry me through life? Who do I, on whose shoulders uh, does, do all my uh, success or failure go? Who has the final say over the direction my life goes? Well, actually, for most of us, that would be, well, actually, that's me. And you might say, oh, that sounds a little bit selfish. Well, I don't think it does, because at the end of the day, if the buck doesn't stop with me, where's it going to stop? And so there's a naturalness, and almost, for many, would say an inevitability about the fact that in our trust, we trust ourselves, primarily and ultimately, at the bottom of everything. I want to be clear on this. However natural and sensible that must seem, that is not Christian faith. In fact, that's the opposite of Christian faith. Our faith is trusting you, it's not trusting me. It's second person. And also, though, it's not plural, it's singular. Christian faith is not faith in lots of things, but in one person. Now, for others of us, I guess we put it slightly differently. We might have a slightly more diverse portfolio when it comes to trust. I'm reliably informed. I'm not much of an investor myself, uh, for obvious reasons. But um, when people invest, the wisdom seems to be put your investment broadly. Spread your investments to lots of different investments. Because if you put all your investments in one thing, if that thing goes belly up, where you're going to be ruined, aren't you? That's not very sensible. When I spread your investments with your money, and I think many of us treat our investments of trust just the same. We put our trust into lots of different people or things. So it could be in a combination of money or family or health or possessions or reputation or friends. For some of us, we would put God just in a list with all of that stuff. What what, what are we doing in that case? Well, it's very simple. What we're doing is we're saying, look, I want to make sure it's going to turn out all right. Because even if I lose my health, say, well, I'll still have my family with me. And even if my family desert me, well, my friends will rally around me. And even if my friends turn on me, well, I'm going to have enough money to see myself through anyway. And it can be kind of like that. And as Christians, we can operate like this. And God, really, we say, I trust God, but really you're, you're weaving an entire intricate kind of safety net of other things just in case God doesn't come through on stuff. Now, just to be clear, I think it's great to have friends, obvious. Uh, it's not wrong to have possessions. It's good to be wise with your possessions. But if it's not just that you have those things, but your trust is being shared with those things, I can't put it another way. That is not Christian faith. Christian faith does not diversify our portfolio of trust. To put it bluntly, Christian faith puts all our eggs in one basket. It burns all of our bridges. Our trust is to be singular, not plural. It's in God and God alone. Actually, I'm sure many of you would agree with that. 
But it's quite hard to apply that because it's quite hard to tell whether the things that you've got in your life are just being treated as gifts from God, which is fine, or are being treated as backup plans in case God fails you. It is quite difficult to kind of uh, work that out. And I guess one of the only ways you can really be sure about that is if you are stripped of all of the other things. Of course, with Jesus here, this is exactly the situation we see him in. He's lost everything. We said friends have gone, uh, family has gone. They're all at a distance to the very, very best. In other Gospels, we, we hear about the, the soldiers dividing Jesus' cloak at the bottom of the cross. His last possession is gone. He has nothing, not a stitch on him, nothing to his name. He has no wife. He has no heir. He is naked and broken. He couldn't be any more a picture of someone who had lost everything. And yet, he still has everything. Father, into your hands. And for Jesus, it's very clear at the end where his trust was. It was all in the Father. It had always, all been in the Father. He could enjoy the the finer things of life at times. He went to parties. He enjoyed the company of his friends. He, He wasn't against people having possessions and money. He had followers who did that. But he never put his trust in those things. And we see that proved to us here. I wonder for some people, God is putting his finger on this at the moment for you in a similar way to which Jesus did on the cross. Maybe if you were to say, well, it is a time of darkness for me at the moment, that wouldn't be a darkness of abandonment, that would be a darkness of loss. Maybe a loss of loved ones, maybe loss of income, maybe loss of job, loss of friends, loss of security. Now, please hear me in this. I don't want to be oversimplistic about what the cause of those things is. is That's complex, okay? But in the Bible, when people talk about losing things, usually the terminology they use is, God took it from me. There's a sense of sovereignty of God in, in the word where people can say that without saying, God's to blame for all of this. They can make the jump there and say, but I do understand he's in charge and there is a reason for this. And I wonder if among the other things that are going on, what God's doing is he's exposing where your trust really lies. Now, if you can identify with that, I'd encourage you to respond like Jesus. You can find out where your trust lies at times like that. In a, t- in a way, that can be a gift to you because if you can come out and still say, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, what happens is you look back and go, you know what? What God's done in me is deep. What God's done in me is real and I can trust him through anything. Copy Jesus' example I know for some you might think, but I think that's foolish. I think that's naive of me to do. I've trusted him for all this stuff, and, but I've lost all these things. Surely this is a sign that I shouldn't be turning back to God. Surely this is a sign maybe he's not even there. Think people think I'm naive, just blindly going ahead when everything's gone. Think of how naive Jesus would have looked on the cross. Think of the people could hear as he's there with nothing, and he says, Father, into your hand I commit my spirit, and then dies. Imagine that, people just going... Yeah, that didn't really work out for you there, did it, Jesus? It didn't really go the way you thought. These people who walk away beating their breasts, it says. I wonder if they also were shaking their head at this so-called prophet's naivety in the whole thing. Tell you what, though. Didn't look so naive three days later, did he? Didn't look foolish then. For you too, I'd encourage you, keep hold of Jesus as 
God tests your faith in things. And if you do, if you can continue like Jesus, say, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, you will walk out the other side with your head held high, even more confident of the good work he's done in you. Father, into your hands. It is faith in God alone, but it's in faith of something of God's. It's faith in God's hands. And I think this hands image is a really helpful image for us when we think of trust. And we would use the imagery of hands and trust together a lot, I think, in lots of different ways. I just want to focus on two, one explicitly in the passage, one that's in another place in Scripture uh, as well. We could talk about this in terms of being given over into someone's hands. Okay, that might seem, well, what does that mean? Give you an example. Uh, The prisoner was passed into the hands of the police. Okay, we could say that, we understand what that meant. The child was placed into the hands of his new adopted parents or her new adopted parents. Okay, what does it mean then to be placed into someone's hands? It would mean to be put under their care uh, in that sort of sense. And it would also mean to become totally vulnerable actually to their intentions. If you you put in someone's hands, they they have you where they want you and they can do what they want with you in a sense. Okay, it's not such a nice way to spin it, but that would be including that image. Now at this point, it's probably worth revealing something about this statement of Jesus that I haven't said so far, but Jesus wasn't just uh, shooting from the hip when he prayed this way on the cross. It's not an original construction of Jesus. Jesus is quoting an Old Testament psalm here. In fact, he's quoting Psalm 31, verse 5, a psalm of David. Okay, David uh, writes in Psalm 31, verse 5, you'll hear the familiarity here, into your hands I commit my spirit. Deliver me, Lord, my faithful God. Okay? Now, Jesus would have known almost certainly off by heart the entire Old Testament. That would, was, devout Jews were taught that. That's how it went those days. So on the cross, you've got Jesus thinking of verse 5. It's pretty clear that the whole thing would have been very close to his mind and he was meditating on. Okay, And uh, in this psalm, in Psalm 31, David has a right thing for hands. He's always going on about hands in this sort of sense. So verse 8, he says this, You have not given me into the hands of the enemy, but have set my feet in a spacious place. Verse 15 of Psalm 31, my times are in your hands. Deliver me from the hands of my enemies, from those who pursue me. And if you go through that psalm, and I encourage you to do it later, it's incredible the comparisons between David's situation in that psalm and Jesus' situation on the cross. So it seems very fitting, in a sense, that Jesus is thinking about this psalm. However, there would have been points in this psalm that would have been really hard for Jesus to swallow as he thought about it at this time. Okay? Verse 8, for example, I, I don't think this would have been very comforting to Jesus. This is what uh, David says, saying, you have not given me into the hands of the enemy. Imagine Jesus on the cross thinking, oh yeah, you've not given me the hands of the enemy. Really? He has been given literally into the hands of his enemy. His enemy's hands have beaten him. They've stripped him, they've slapped him, they've punched him. His enemy's hands have driven nails into his hands and into his feet. But even then, Jesus somehow still trusted that he could say with David lines like, my times, my days, my whole life is still in your hands and I trust you that you will deliver me. I think there's another sense in which the imagery of hands is helpful though. 
uh, slightly important to the passage, but I think it, it's still telling, is when we talk about people, hold, uh, put people in people's hands, we talk about holding hands sometimes, don't we? That's a familiar image, and it's used in the Bible as well. And uh, for us, obviously, uh, the holding hands image would be more romantic, tenderness and affection that way. The, the young couple, or old couple, I know that, I still hold hands with my wife, you know, that's okay. Uh, it, holding hands, it's kind of romantic affection in that sort of sense. And uh, I've been at many meetings in, in our church as well, where sometimes we would veer uh, in the contribution or maybe in the songs towards seeing God in this way. of Like, oh, God's holding my hands like a kind of couple skipping along. I want to be really clear on this. I find that weird, okay? I find it odd. I don't think it's what the Bible means. I don't think that Jesus is uh, batting his eyelids at us and gazing longly, longingly into our eyes. I just don't think that's a helpful way to see it. And more than it's not helpful, it's just not what the Bible means when it says God holds our hands. Psalm 73 is a great example. Again, a Psalm of David. And as you'll see, showing exactly the same sentiment as Psalm 31 and what Jesus says on the cross. This is what he says. Psalm 73, verse 23. David talking to God, yet I am always with you, you hold me by my right hand. Oh, isn't that nice? God's holding his hand. Is it romantic affection? No, it's not. Look what he says. Next, you guide me with your counsel and afterwards you'll take me into glory. Now this holding hands is a different holding hands. It's a holding hand that says, come on, come with me. I'm going to lead you somewhere good. That's what he's saying. You guide me. You bring me into glory. Look at afterwards, incredible uh, words. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. It's exactly what we've said. My faith is in you alone. There's nothing else I can trust here. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That's Christian trust. It's not extreme. That's not for keen Christians. That's Christian trust right there. Jesus had seen the hand of the Father lead him through the valley of the shadow of death and into death itself. What does he do? Tell you what he doesn't do. He doesn't let go of the Father's hand. No, in fact, he throws himself even more firmly into the Father's hands. The same is true for us. We say this about the hands of God. They are trustworthy hands. You are in safe hands when you were in God's hands. Some of you might still be worried that you've been handed over to other powers, that you, your destiny, your life is in the control of others, like authority figures, events outside of yourself. You know what? Again, acknowledge again whose hands you are really in and that they're a safe pair of hands and throw yourself back into those hands. Some of you might have been following God's guidance in your life and it might be getting a bit full on for you and you're like, whoa, wait a minute. You really want me to do that? You want me to go there? You want me to take my whole family there? How do you know my family? How, are we, how am I going to do that? I'm not strong enough. What happens if you don't do this, 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 God? This is going to end in disaster. No, what God's saying to you is he wants again to acknowledge that his hand guides you with his counsel and leads you into glory. He doesn't lead you ultimately into bad things. Yes, you may go through the valley of the shadow of death, but you know what? He takes you out the other side. Surely goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our life. Commit yourself back into the Father's hands. That's what trust is. Very finally then, the last statement is, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. I commit my spirit. What does that mean? Why does he use that word spirit at the end? 
I think it's interesting in this passage that a, a con- contrast is made between the spirit and the body. Okay? We see this from Jesus. Jesus is concerned about his spirit, but everyone else is concerned about his body. So as we see after he dies, Joseph is a good thing to do. He goes to Pilate for Jesus' body. And what does he do? He cares for the body, as you would in that culture. And he wraps it very carefully in linen, and he finds a new home for that body. And the women do exactly the same. Again, naturally in that culture, they would have a concern with uh, how you treat a dead body, and they do these perfumes and these spices for the body. That's the point. They're put on the body to, to show respect in that sort of way. Now, just so you know, at this point in the talk, I'm not now diving into the thorny issue of what is a human being? Are we spirit? Are we body? All well, those sort of things. No, nope, we're not going there. All to say, the only thing I need to say on that is clearly what is not being said here is, you know what, your spirit's really important, your body, forget about that. And we know that because Jesus gets a new body in a few days, okay? We are not a Casper the friendly ghost inside a shell, okay? If we were, Casper would have returned out of that tomb, not a new body, okay? So we can say that, but I think there is a more broad uh, point, (laughs) Casper or Jesus or whatever. Do do you know who Casper the friendly ghost is? Okay, does anyone not know who that is? Okay, a couple, yeah, sorry. I'm old, he's a ghost and he's shaped a bit like an apostrophe or something like that. Anyway, I'm losing it. I'm going to come back to my notes. Um, there's a more broad point being made here, I think, and it's this. There, there are some parts of our lives, clearly, that are passing away. And the things that we surround ourselves with and things we think of who we are, they're passing away. They're temporary, okay? Like our human bodies, that would be the case, okay? There are some parts of us in our lives that are going to be there forever and are fundamental to who we are and always have been and always will be. God can be trusted with the latter and not the former. Now, I'm going to break that down for you because this is very important as we finish to understand this. We can't trust God for the things that are heading for destruction anyway. We trust God for who we are. Jesus wasn't saying on the cross, Father, into your hands I commit all the bits of the life that are just passing away anyway. He's not saying, I commit into your hands my health and my prosperity or my immediate happiness. He wasn't trusting the Father for those things. And it's good that he wasn't, because if he had, he would have been very sorely disappointed. Also, he's not trusting his father with all his wishes and desires and his dreams and ambitions. He's not saying, my dreams are all safe in your hands. No, we know that because we know what he was desiring at this point. We know it from the Garden of Gethsemane. What is Jesus' desire? What's his prayer at this moment? Father, take this cup from me. I don't want to go to the cross. He was quite clear on that. If he trusted the father with that, you know what? He's going to be thrown at this point. No, Jesus didn't say, I trust you with those things, the passing things of this life. No, he said, into your hands I commit my spirit. He's saying, I know that I am safe with you. The the thing that makes me, me, me in the deepest sense of the word, my spirit, my eternal destiny, the things that matter, I trust you with them. And Jesus held everything else very, very lightly. And it's good that he did because he found out that God held those things very lightly too. But he never let go of Jesus. Finally, for us, I wonder there's some here who, deep down, I'm in the back of your mind, you're thinking, God's already dropped me. He's already shown he's not faithful because that ambition, that dream, that calling died. Or that thing I was trusting him for, that bit of happiness, that, that relationship, that job, he didn't give it to me. So he's not trustworthy. He's let me down. I think God will want to refocus your faith today. Listen, this is really important. It is not true 
that everything that is valuable to you is valuable to God. I'll say that again. It's not true that everything that is valuable to you is valuable to God. We live in a world that is passing away. And most of the stuff that we see around us is heading for destruction. We've got to have the perspective right here. And ultimately that means that our trust for God doesn't, mustn't be based upon trusting him to preserve such fleeting things, our fleeting desires, our personal goals and ambitions. Yes, often God blesses us with those things. But that's not, we don't trust him for those things ultimately. Otherwise we'll end up concluding that God's not trustworthy. If not now, on the day that you do finally die. On the day that you do lose those things. Because you will, because they're passing away. No, God values you. He works things together for your good. Not as defined by you, but as defined by him in the most incredible sense that he will, like we said before, lead you into glory. Now, and again, I know that's tough. I know that's really hard because we hold things very tightly. We cherish loads of stuff. But again, take heart from Jesus here. Think about it. Jesus' earthly body was broken beyond repair. No question of that. Completely shattered. But as he committed his spirit into the Father's hand, what happened? He got a new one. He got a better one. An upgrade of the body. That's next week. We'll see that next week. Listen, there are things that you've lost from God. That God is letting slip through his fingers. Not because he's being cruel to you. Because he wants to replace them with better things. That's why. With more permanent good. But he's calling to you to respond just the same. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So can I encourage you to refocus on the one thing God asks of you today. A simple trust in him. A simple trust that he still loves us even when it doesn't look like it around us. A simple trust that isn't just a cover for self-dependence or a reliance on other things we surround ourselves with, but that truly trusts him and him alone. Simple trust that his hands are safe to hold us, to keep us safe, and to guide us into good things. And a simple trust that recognizes that although there are things on the edges of our lives, things that could well be very important to us that he will let slip through his fingers, he will never drop you. And he will keep you safe forever.